The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. We've crossed that fundamental threshold. The 1st of December is behind us. That means Christmas lights can go up. You can talk about Christmas. Santa's already started his preparation, but it means that you can, according to the great Larry Gogan, play Christmas music. And you have to, therefore, if you're a music station, pick what Christmas music to play. Well, thankfully, there is an expert in this choice, that being Kieran, or rather Kieran, I should say. It's a long way from horses, is Kieran. Kieran O'Connor from uh, 98FM, who created the Imro-nominated music documentary, The Story of the Christmas Chart Topper. Now, the interesting thing about this, Kieran, is Chart top- Topper doesn't necessarily mean number one. No, and that's important because a lot of Christmas songs never were number one songs. So that's why these songs we hear every year never actually hit the number one spot. And that's what we will get to. Does that mean that in one Christmas there were two absolute scorchers, one of them got number one and one didn't? Or yeah. do Christmas songs become sleeper hits? No, it's kind of like the X Factor. You know, the X Factor theory, the number one winner never actually does well. It's always the second and third winners who tend to take over the world. And that's what happens with Christmas songs. They seem to be good one year, but we don't play them every single year. It's like chart songs now. They're good for now, but they're forgotten about. Same with Christmas songs. They are the ones that are on the compilation year in, year out are the chart toppers in my mind. So does that mean that you define the ultimate success of a Christmas song by longevity? Yeah, but it's also the fact that they're the ones that people remember. They're the songs that when they come on, whether it be a nightclub, a bar, someone playing guitar in the corner, everyone will get up and sing songs and they will sing that song word for word. Okay, well, I think in that case, we have to start with the uh, obvious Bing Crosby, White Christmas from 1942. Now, we're going back years with this song. This is a time when, I mean, think back 100 years, there wasn't Christmas songs. There were religious, oh, holy night, silent night. They were lovely choir sung songs. The Great Depression hit and things kind of changed to a more commercial world. So your, your Christmas hits were less about religion, less about God and more about Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, and Santa Claus is coming to town. And that's what happened. And Bing Crosby, I guess you could call it, one of the early Christmas songs as we now know it. So the year was um, 1942 when uh, Irving Berlin, his massive film Holiday Inn, was created. He wrote the song White Christmas, performed by Bing Crosby. Now, it's a song we all know. It's a beautiful song. But it's also the best-selling single in the world. Now, not just Christmas song, the best-selling single in the world. Is it? So it sold, at the time they estimate, about 50 million copies. Now, to put that into context, Beyonce's latest song, Break My Soul, you may know it. Beyonce's a big artist. Uh, her latest song at the moment is on 14 million streams. So 14 million streams compared to 50 million sold copies. Now, was a bit of that a uh, function, if it's 42, that means it's right smack bang in the war years. We're in and around, we're, we're Pearl Harbor adjacent by one side or the other. So does that mean there was a, a desperate want for sentimentality and kindness? Well, kind of. Pearl Harbor had just happened a few weeks before. So this carol came along. It was this longing, this melancholic yearning of Christmas is past. And that's what the song is all about. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. So you can imagine there's soldiers all around the world who are missing their family and they hear this song. And it's going to bring back nostalgic memories of the time you were at home in America with your kids. And it became a massive hit, 
uh, not only 50 million copies sold, but there's been 100 million copies, they estimate, sold of all the covers, all the other performers who were crazy for this song. Now, with Bing Crosby, you can kind of understand it because he was a bankable star anyway. Around that time, if Bing's putting stuff out, it is doing well. Explain this one to me then. Slade, Merry Christmas, everyone. Well, Slade's a funny one. So if you think... Back then, we're talking 1970s. Slade were riding on the crest of, they were touring the world. They were still they, Slade. They though. were massive, but they were a massive, massive band. Ah, were they? Well, they were in terms of their management, what they thought anyway. They were right, they, they had number one songs all around the world. Come on, Feel the Noise, one of their biggest. They were touring the world and Christmas came about and their management said, you know what, lads? John Lennon last year made a Christmas song. War is over. And the following year... <laughs> By the way, sorry, out of curiosity, have you seen Paul McCartney talk about War Is Over? No. Oh my God, he's scathing. Uh, he's just like, yeah, 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 it's a nice notion, John, but it's daft. I mean, he just throws it, John, Yoko, the whole shooting gallery under the bus. But, no but time for it. He was right at the time because to do a Christmas song, that wasn't cool. These guys are rock stars. Why are we going to sing about Santa Claus and sleigh rides and For snow? the money here. Exactly, and that's what happened. So uh, it was July 19. 1973 and Slade's management said guys you need to hop into a studio in New York and you can imagine it's 35 degrees and they have to pretend they're in a Christmas mood this is a song that Noddy Holder a few years ago he had came up with played it to the guys and they went nah don't like it went in the bin so they rehashed it in summer they just made it in time to become Christmas number one it went straight to number one one million sales in the first week and for us it is just a phenomenal hit. And for them it is their pensions, I as, assume. Well, as Noddy Holder once put it, he referred to it as his pension plan. <laughs> and He's not wrong. Every year they estimate it could come out making the, the band and their management uh, either between half a million and one million. While we're on the topic of money, there is only one Christmas song that I know of that was overtly and publicly designed to create money, which was the Band-Aid Christmas uh, release. The idea being that it would create money for the third world. Yes, well, it was all about Ethiopia. And you said about making money... um, it was, of course, uh, Midjur and Bob Geldof. The plan was they were hoping to make £70,000. It ended up making eight million. That can't be right. There's no way you're getting status quo, Bono, Phil Collins, Bananarama, um, Boy George, I think. No way you're gathering all them in a room and expecting only to get 70 grand. Well, that's how the the old fable goes, whether that's what they were thinking or not. But but like you said, there was an all-star cast, Paul Young, Boy George, George Michael, Bono, all these massive names who at the time you wouldn't have seen on the TV day in, day out. It wasn't a thing back then. Internet wasn't a thing. And if you think back in the day how difficult it was to create a song me and you could sit here now we could sing vocals we could go onto YouTube pull a little piano and in a half an hour we could have a song put it up on News Talk's website and ask people to buy it we really could back then you had to record it master it you had to um, get your records pressed and then shipped around the world so to get this stable of big stars in a room in three days to record this song just in time for Christmas it alone is a feat is it true that Bono begged not to be given the line that Bono was given? Doesn't Bono have the line, I, I, aren't we glad it's them and not me? I, I don't know that, but if anything, that is probably the best known line in the song. So if anything, it turned out that he was the lucky one to get that song. And the funny part is, with all this that was going on, um, Jim Diamond at the time, 
had a number one song in the charts. I should have known better. And he came out to say, please stop buying my song. I know this sounds crazy, but everybody go and buy Do Is They Know It's Christmas. I, sh- I should have known better to fall in love with one yes. is beautiful. Oh, it's a cracking so tune. He came out and said, I do not want you to buy my song, which is a crazy idea. Especially when what's it's such a banger. Yeah. So anyway, that's how that um, it came out, became one of the biggest songs. We have gotten to the legal prohibition point where you're not allowed to discuss more than three Christmas songs without mentioning Mariah Carey. Let's oh, hear yes. a little bit of All I Want for Christmas Is You. So that's that's sort of how you know you're into the Christmas season when somebody breaks out Mariah and Mariah earns another billion dollars yeah. per year. The, the Queen of Christmas, as she says every year, it's time. And the year was 1994. She was only young. For me, this is an earworm. Every time I hear it, it doesn't matter. It be Copperface Jacks, it be on the radio. I will sing along, I will hum along. And the funny part is... Hang on a minute. Do they play All I Want for Christmas is You and Copperface Jacks? Anton, it was our Christmas party last night. Were you not there with us all? <laughs> we were all singing Mariah. I thought I saw you in the middle, no? no. I must have got distracted okay, at that point. Maybe. My apologies. Yes, absolutely. Uh, coppers for the rest of the, the year will be filled with Christmas songs. And of this Christmas song, it took 15 minutes to write the melody, which is the crazy part. 15 minutes to write the melody. You get Mariah in and it becomes one of the biggest commercially led Christmas songs in the world. And the for again for Mariah Carey, this was at a point where she was making quite enough, thank you very much, off her general album releases because she's now sort of synonymous with that sparkly Christmas sequence thing. But Mariah was huge, just as Mariah in the day. Was huge, still is. So much so, out of this song, All I Want for Christmas, they adapted a book, a movie, and I'm not sure now, in recent weeks, she announced a Christmas tour where Mariah is doing a Christmas tour with one Christmas song. She's going to sing other carols and things like that. But it's all across North America at the moment and it's sold out. Bumper to bumper shows she is making a fortune, not only every time we play her one Christmas song, but by going and touring a Christmas show. Uh, presumably across the world as well, because that has to be one of the critical things is, I think Naughty Holder and Slade were just a big hit in the UK, whereas Mariah must have sold in pretty much every, even quasi-English speaking market. I can market. imagine every corner from Hungary to Japan, Australia, hit number two in all those countries. Uh, and that's another thing. It never actually reached number one. So this goes back to what we were saying originally about the number one chart topper. This was never an actual number one song. Um, E17, Stay Another Day, got the number one spot. Now, again, E17, Stay Another Day is not a Christmas song. It is. That's no, not, no. We're not starting this like Die Hard. It, it, it has been grandfathered in by repetition. Them's the rules, Karen. No, okay, I wonder where it's at again. it. But you do know the story, right? No. Okay. Tell I, I, I don't know if I should because it might upset you because it upsets some people. Um, so, Tony Mortimer from the band E17, his brother had recently passed away. So, he created this song for his brother. The record label went you know what, guys, if you put on some big fluffy coats and we put in some fake CGI snow, we might be in with a chance of getting a Christmas number one. And that's what happened. If you actually listen to E17 Stay Another Day, no mention of Christmas. See, this is like, you know the, the um, Pink Floyd song that has the line about, um, you guys are fantastic, that's really what I think, and by the way, which one's the Pink, where they're mocking the record. Yeah. A lot to be said for a good record executive. Good Those record. boys are retiring off that man's work. <laughs> Absolutely they are. Their, their pension plan, in the words of Nutty Holder. We can't, of course, discuss Christmas songs in the week that's in it without the one defining Irish Christmas song, The Pogues and Fairytale in New York. Yeah, of course. Shane and Kirsty back together. Um, it is the ultimate Christmas song in my mind. And it's been voted the nation's favourite Christmas song. It's also the most played Christmas song of the 21st century. So it is the big one. Um, 
it went through a funny recording process though. So Cot O'Reardon, who was the bass player in the Pogues, she sang on the first version. And you're probably going, oh, there was a first version. There was. So you go onto YouTube, type in Pogue's Fairy Tale of New York, demo one or two. It'll come up and you will hear Cot O'Reardon singing on this. Nice song. But then Steve Lillywood, Steve Lilly White, excuse me, um, who came in, he was the husband of Kirsty McCall at the time. The story goes, Kirsty and Steve Lillywhite hopped into studio. Their kids were running around in their home studio and they recorded this absolute ballad. It was brought back to the band and they went, sorry, Cot, you're out. And that is the Pogues fairy tale of New York version that we have now featuring the wonderful vocals of Kirsty McCall. We were talking about uh, whether or not things make it to one, uh, number one. Can you recall whether or not that ever made it to number uh, one? I don't think it ever made it to number one, no. And again, we can go back to the whole thing of is it a Christmas song? It's not really a jolly Christmas song. It goes See, against everything. There's a guy who's drunk after being arrested in New York City. Yeah, and, and like, if you won't allow me to to grandfather things in based on repetition, <laughs> the only thing that makes it a Christmas Eve song or a Christmas song is that it, the events are set around Christmas Eve. Yeah. But it is not a celebration of sitting around the hearth and the fire and good times were had by all. No, it's not. And that goes back to the whole commercial thing of it's not all about fluffy reindeers and lovely snow. It's probably the truth about Christmas. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. There's also the hard times that people go through as well. And I think that's why people appreciate this song. It's a nice song. It has great lyrics. And look, the melody as well, when you hear it, it just swells up and puts a smile on your face. I mentioned that you, of course, you're not licking this off the rocks. You created the uh, documentary, The Story of the Christmas Chart Topper. That means that you have been exposed to them in a professional capacity for a yes. long time. Give me then your personal favourite and the justification for it? It has to be the Pogue's fairy tale of New York and for just what I said it's like a fine wine it doesn't age and every Christmas when I hear that swell of music I just get goosebumps all over my body it's a fantastic song and I love to hear it Karen, much appreciated and thank you very much for coming in at an obscene hour after you were out to the wee smalls <laughs> listening to uh, Mariah in Copperface Jacks. That is Karen O'Connor from 98FM and of course the man responsible for the Imro nominated music documentary The Story of the Christmas Chart Topper. The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.